us to recalibrate our life, the meaning and the purpose of our life, that it is all about you. Lord Jesus, I pray that you become the center of our life, the only rock and firm foundation that we live in this world with. All the other religions and all the empty philosophies of life will die and go to the grave, Father. But those who believe in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, are like a man who built a house on solid rock. And when the storms of life came and the waters rose, the house stood strong. So is everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Father God. Help us in our endeavor to serve you. In Jesus' name. Please sit down. Thank you for your concern and your prayers. I appreciate that very much. And uh, I will keep you informed on how things are going. We're going to read out of Luke today. We're going to be looking at one story, highlighting the story of a fool and his money. But I'm going to start in verse 1 of Luke 12. Read the verse 21. And when we get to verse 13, that is the story I will be speaking about. But let's start in verse 12, chapter 12, verse 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, Jesus began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the private room shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you whom you shall fear, Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are more valued than many sparrows. Verse 8. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Verse 13, this will be our story. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell me, my brother, to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said, Man, who made me judge and arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Jesus that is, Take care that you be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. 
and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Let's pray. Lord, like always, we become, we come humbly before your word as it teaches us all things concerning life in this world, Father God. All the nuances of our heart, those things in us that we can set up as an idol, that we can chase foolish things to think that we're going to have a full life if we just have these things, things, man-made things. Idols, God. Help us, Father God, to make sure that we're rich towards you and not towards ourselves and towards these idols, Father God. Help us to understand the text within its context, Father God. Encourage us today, Father God. Teach us, Lord, how we can be rich towards you. Help us, Father God, in our endeavor not to be like this fool. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus is taking time out here as an object lesson to teach on one of the well, one of the hidden drives and hidden passions of men and women's hearts, and that's the desire to acquire. Two thousand years ago, it's not a new thing. Nothing's changed under the sun. As Jesus says, "Don't think that you can find a life in the abundance of possessions." Uh, we live in a highly, if not saturated materialistic secular world that thinks that more is always better and I've tasted that I know that feeling I I know it well and I still got to fight it off to think that I'm going to find happiness in something else outside of God you know maybe if I can just get my bench press up if I can if I can run that extra if I can lose the five pounds or I can do this and we all have our things we can listen and we can make it an idol not something that's just passionate to pursue and to enjoy exercises and and, and hobbies are and things like that. There's nothing wrong with these things. It's when we turn it into a pursuit that we think it's going to make me happy. That if I just have that missing link, I'll genuinely be fulfilled. I'll be happy. Jesus has taken time out in this this teaching ministry to address this. And it's, it's very interesting how this topic comes up. It comes up out of nowhere, really. And we'll get into that when I get into the text. But we want to deal with that today. And, and we have the answer real fast. That giving is better than receiving. Jesus taught us that. Amen? Amen. You know, and, and that's where life is. Life is not just having and hoarding. You can have. I hope you have a lot. I hope you get a lot. But give it away. Don't hoard it. And that's how we're rich towards God. There is nothing wrong with having there's nothing wrong with acquiring there's nothing wrong with being industrious there's nothing wrong with being ambitious there's nothing wrong with having a drive to succeed and to excel nothing wrong with any of it just don't put it before God as the sole means of happiness because it doesn't work and we're going to find that out as we go into the story I want to speak about one note before we move on here. 
when we come to the Gospels and we're reading something about Christ, and he's given us these profound insights into uh, human life, you know, we can have the, the, how can I say, we can fall into the trap of thinking, well, he's God, he knows all these things. And he is, he's 100% God. There's nothing not God about Jesus. But Jesus is not speaking from the perspective of God. He's speaking from the perspective of man, fully God, fully man. This is Jesus, the mystery of the, uh, of the incarnation, the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ. He's speaking as a man. He's probably about 31, 32 years old at this point. And he's speaking from the perspective of a 32-year-old man that obeyed the Old Testament law about what Brother Patty pre- uh, exhorted us before, about the fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom. Jesus is the man that perfectly fulfilled that commandment and exhortation. That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and all our life and all our joy is found in obedience to God. So when Jesus is speaking about this parable about money, understand something. He's not saying, you know guys, I'm God, I know all things. He's like, no. I'm man. I'm a carpenter. I grew up in, 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 in a lowly means. I didn't grow up in a rich home or in a rich neighborhood. I worked hard all my life. And guess what? I had just enough to survive, uh, just enough to give to my family, just enough to be rich towards God. My fulfillment wasn't found in my money or in my position in life or as a carpenter. My joy was found in obeying God. I don't want you to miss that. Because sometimes we think about Jesus as, as just God himself, just as his divinity. But Jesus taught from the perspective of a man that obeyed God perfectly. And that's important for us to know. Because Jesus is not speaking, uh, how can I say, abstracting. Jesus lived it. He knows what it is to work. And work hard. And I share this many times. When we see Jesus, you will see a man about 5'7", five, 5'8", five, maybe 5'9", maybe 145, 150 pounds. He'll have hands like steel. Because a carpenter was really a mason. They worked with stone and wood. It's probably ripped. Probably ripped. That's who Jesus is. He worked hard. But he knew that life, the abundance of life, is not found in possessions. It's found being rich towards God. We'll get into that as we go along there. He chose from his heart to put God first and trust and obey him. This parable is straightforward. It addresses one of man's, if not man's greatest enemy of his soul, greed. And you don't have to be rich to be greedy, and you don't have to be poor to be greedy. You can be both. You can have a lot of money and be greedy, and you can have nothing and be greedy. Greedy has no particulars. Greed is is a vice of the heart. And unfortunately, sometimes it's the learned behavior. Sometimes it's a cultural learned behavior. The lust for more, the lust whether it's money or fame or power or possessions, that kind of lust, that kind of drive, sooner or later turns into worship. We don't even realize that I was there, that was me. 
man, I want to succeed and succeed. And and the more I succeeded, it was a short-lived success. Short-lived. Then guess what? There's this insatiable appetite for more. See, greed never takes time out. Idolatry never takes time out. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 3.5, the apostle. He says this. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And you would say, well, what is that, Paul? He goes, all right, I'll tell you. Fornication, put it away. Impurity, put it away. Passion, put it away. Evil desire, put it away. And put away all covetousness, which he says is idolatry. The greed and the lust for more. Paul calls it idolatry. It's worship. It's idol worship. Money, if we lust it and want it, is idol worship. I was so happy when I learned that as a young Christian. I was so happy that God was slowly taken away from me to just drive for more and more and more. Let's go to our text. Let me give you an historical background, which is why I started in verse 1. Jesus, is, he's on a roll. He just left a famous religious leader's house. He just walked out of it. Thousands, as we said, were trampling on one another just to hear what Jesus was saying. Thousands. That's what the text is. Trampling. The multitudes were trampling on one another. Think about it. The mass hysteria you see at a concert or a football game or a soccer game or a rugby game, you know, and it's just the crowds are going crazy, you know, like uh, first come, first serve seating. Forget it. They'll run you over. That's what's taking place. In the Greek, it means they stormed Jesus. We have this crowd storming Jesus. He just left the religious leader's house. He takes the time now to get some things off his chest. One of the things he wants to get off his chest is namely the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. That's the religious leaders. And you would say, what is this leaven? Leaven is something you put in bread to what? Swell it up. Hypocrisy. It's poison. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, he rebuked them for being poisonous. All greed and all idolatry flowed out of them. Naturally, they didn't take that well. So they hated him even more because he pointed to their love for money and not their love for God. After leaving there, the crowds, which numbered in the thousands, were trampling one another just to get a sight of him, to speak to him on all various reasons. Which is, is still today true. Some people come to Jesus for disingenuine reasons. Not everybody comes because they want to be forgiven. There is no other thing than the need to be forgiven. That is the, the, the cry of the soul. It is not God help me with this situation. Or God help me with this situation. I can come to Jesus that way. You know, but the deepest cry we have is Lord I need to be forgiven. I can't live another day on this life if I don't know I'm genuinely forgiven. The 
through the mass hysteria, a man gets his attention. Pictures. There's a crowd going on. They're trampling on one another. He's rebuking their religious leaders. Out of nowhere, a man gets his attention. He's not concerned. This man's not concerned with, Jesus, explain to me, what do you mean the religious leaders? I I love that rabbi. You're telling me he's a hypocrite? You would think maybe the man would say that, right? He doesn't say that. You would think, well, maybe the man was concerned with uh, blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. You would think that the last thing I would want to do is blaspheme the Holy Spirit because there's no forgiveness. You would think, Jesus, have I ever blasphemed the Holy Spirit? He doesn't ask anything about that. You would think, well, maybe I should, did I ever deny you, Jesus? He doesn't ask anything about denying Christ. All this great, rich, spiritual, eternal truth, this eternal teaching that's flowing from the mouth of God, this man doesn't even hear. Because he's there for his own reasons. This man is concerned only about his own financial affairs. He's not even concerned about his brother. He's not concerned about his own family. Tell my brother to give me part of the estate. This is like, you've got to be kidding me. Isn't there anything more important to you right now than your family's estate? Is that the only thing that has gripped you? You see, Jesus... He looks right past it. He knows what the the heart of the story is. There's more to this than an an arbitrator. This man's only concern is for his own personal need, not his family, not his brother, only himself. Jesus uses this as an opportunity to deal with the real issue. I love Christ. Please. Please. Go home if you haven't and start a new love affair just with the Gospels. And look how Jesus addresses every question. He sees right through the question into the real problem. Has nothing to do with the inheritance. He's dealing with the greed that's in this man's heart that's so bad he doesn't even care about his own family. He just wants what is his, and that is it. He uses the opportunity to deal with the underlying question of, really, it's greed. Luke deals a lot with money and greed issues. Jesus deals with a lot in Acts chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14, 15, and 16. He deals with a lot. If you just read it, you'll see it many times. But Jesus now uh, speaks to everybody involved. He's not speaking to the Pharisees. He's not just speaking to this one man. He's using this one man's question. He's using this one man's greed to speak to the whole crowd. He gets the whole crowd's attention. He gives the whole crowd, uh, uh, he sounds a solemn warning. Be on your God. He doesn't even answer the man's question. He says, be on your God against all covetousness, which which, which translates from the Greek, make it your constant aim in life. Do not be tripped up by the love of money. 
Make it your aim in life. That's what it means. Do not get caught up. Make it your aim in life. Guard yourself against this entity, against this greed that's throughout the world, throughout culture, even in families. Be careful. Don't get caught up in it. Make it your constant aim in life. Today and every day you live in this adulterous, greedy generation against this great, deceiving evil. Greed. I love preaching this message. We live in such a material, hard-headed materialism. I mean, it's like, don't tell me not to pursue more. I was talking to somebody about this parable one day, and he goes, who made you a moral leader over me? I said, I was just sharing you something Jesus said. And all of a sudden, he thought I was his moral judge. I was like, no. It hurt. That's why. It hurt. Let me give you some lessons here. I want to go to verse 15. First half. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. He turns from the man, he says it now just to the disciples. He's concerned with the disciples. He is discipling his disciples. He's passing down the the invaluable, intangible lessons of a Christian's life. He's telling his 12 disciples and all those who truly follow him, he's saying this. Let me tell you what life is all about. It has nothing to do with your possessions. Listen to me, he says. He says, take heed and beware of all covetousness, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus looks at the disciples. This man's question is all about the apparent ugliness of greed. The disciples just heard this man cry out of a crowd that's trampling all. You think he would have said, Jesus, help the people that are getting stamped on. Help the people who are... No. Help me get my money is all this man. You ever see someone who just wants the money? Isn't it ugly? It's about the money. It's an ugly sight. And fresh there, right next to the disciples, is this man who sees a crowd, a thong, trampling on one another. He just heard some of the best spiritual teaching you can be. And all he wants is the money. That's an ugly ugly sight. But Jesus uses this. He's he's brilliant. It's an object lesson against greed and all forms of covetous. He's using this man now as a lesson for his disciples to take heed. With this man's question, with all its apparent ugliness, you can picture the whole thing. This is a great time to show his disciples the ugly side of greed. This man was dressed to the nines. The text doesn't tell us, but this man was worth something because there's inheritance involved. Only those who were wealthy had an inheritance. He's already wealthy. But what? It's not good enough. Jesus gives an answer first in the negative. Then he gives it in the positive. We don't get the positive until Verse 21. Listen to 1 John chapter 2. Verse 
Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of this world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. You know, like life can never, ever be found in possessions because you cannot take it with you. John MacArthur says you'll never see a funeral with a U-Haul truck behind it. Take my possession. You know, you know who did that? Actually, that's not true. Pharaoh did that. When they buried the pharaohs, they buried them as billionaires, thinking they're going to take it to the other side. It's the foolishness of man. What a foolish thought that you can find life in hoarding things and money and just keeping it all for yourself. That somewhere in there is going to be life. He goes on to say, all forms, you see, I like the way he says that. He just needs to say, all forms of covetousness or all forms of greed. See, greed comes in different sizes and shapes, whether it be money or power, control, fame, possessions, positions in life, gifts, talents, our time. We can be very greedy with a lot of, a lot of different things. Don't, this is mine. That's how you know if it's greed. Mine, mine, mine. Brian, mine can't go there. I'm too busy. I'm too, I can't do that. Don't ask me to do this. Mine, 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 mine. It's like we isolate ourselves. We isolate ourselves in our time, our possessions, our gifts and talents, our monies, whatever it is. You know, it's interesting. Moses speaks against this in Exodus chapter 20. We also know it's the 10th commandment. You shall not cover your neighbor's house, nor you shall cover your neighbor's wife, or his manservant, or his maidservant, or his ox, or his ass, or anything else your neighbor has. It's a donkey. For the, one, for the two people who giggled. It's a donkey. It's not an ass. It's a donkey. You gotta laugh. <laughs> Praise God. You see what Jesus does? He tells his disciple, he tells this man in a parable to make the point. And this parable has seven observations. Let's listen. Verse 16. First of all, this man was already rich, as we already said. Otherwise, if you're not rich, there's no estate to, to, to divide up. It teaches us that greed. The greedy heart is never satisfied. Listen to Ecclesiastes 5.10. This is Solomon. The wisest, richest man of his time. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. No, he who loves wealth with gain. This is also vanity. You see, greed is insatiable appetite for more of everything. He does not stop. Beauty. This is the new greed. Beauty. Youth. Everybody wants to stay as young as you can, as long as you can, to look young and it'll do anything. Not to age one hour. Spend all their time, all their energy, all their money on it. It's insatiable appetite. See what happens? You can cover up a wrinkle. You can cover up this, you can cover this up, you can cover it all up. 
But you understand you're still dying on the inside. Still dying. No one tells him that. Still dying on the inside. You can cover it up for a moment. Then in two months, you've got to do it again. You've got to do it again. Then it's a month later. Then it's two weeks later. You've got to do it over and over and over and over again. I'm glad I don't color my hair. I'm glad I don't have to go through that. This is one of the small perks as a man. You don't have to worry about coloring your hair. Now, the women, I understand. I understand. Every two or three weeks, you got to get your hair colored. There's a two or three weeks. Right? Three weeks for my wife. It used to be four. The older you get, you see, it's not four weeks anymore. Now it's three weeks, it's two weeks. Then you cut it shorter, then you put a hat on, you know, you try everything. Verse 17 and 19 says this. Actually, I want to read it. Can we put 17 and 19 up there? Chapter 12. In the meantime, when so many thousands of... That's verse 1. Okay, we'll take a moment. Are we there? 17? Okay, we'll start 17, go to 19. Uh Uh-huh, time out. I got something even better. I'm going to read it from my Bible. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And this man thought to himself, What shall I do? If I have nowhere to store my crops... He has this brainstorm. He says, ha-ha. He has an aha moment. I'll do this. I'll tear down my own bonds, my old ones, and I'll build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat and drink and be merry. You see, these verses allow us to enter the deliberations of the greedy man's heart. Who's, at, who's obtained. We entered into deliberations of this rich man's mind, and he's thinking only of himself. Don't miss this. Please understand some God is not against wealth. He's not against it at all. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament says, wealth is from the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 8. All wealth is from the Lord. There's nothing wrong with it. But listen, in these three verses, this man said the personal pronoun I six times. Three verses. He referred to himself six times. And four other times he used the personal pronoun my. My treasures. That's ten times. Three verses of scripture. He's all about what? He's all about himself. That is it. God's nowhere in the equation. Not even his family's in the equation. It's only natural of this type of person to start thinking of his future in terms of what? Luxury, convenience, and comfort. You think you have the brainstorm and say, man, God's blessed me. God has really blessed my life. God, what should I do? What can I do? Who needs something, God? What what can I do with my life, God? See, this is really where it gets dangerous. You know why? Because it becomes self-deceiving. 
You know what happens when you have acquired a lot? You've achieved a lot. You get this false sense of security that you are invincible. Invincible. I've arrived. I'm here. I have the American dream. I have everything I've ever wanted. I have everything everybody else wants. I have it all. There's one thing he doesn't have. He's not guaranteed tomorrow. And neither are you or me. He feels invincible. Money and success can have this sort of self-deceiving effect on us. It's intoxicating. This American dream is intoxicating. It drives men and women to do bad things. Not always bad, but just in the inquiring that God has left out of the equation, you have this sense of invincibility that God's never going to reckon an account of your life, that tomorrow's never going to come, that you, you can just live on and on into eternity. You see, sometimes when we do acquire that which we want... We lose touch with reality of who we really are. We're humans. We're mere mortals. This man forgot he was a mortal. You know, success can do that. Even if it's not with money. If you, if you get good with something, you get rid and, and every, you get fame. You get a position in life. You get status in life. Hello, Mr. Mark. Yes, Mr. Mark. Yeah, sure, Mr. Mark. You're like, yeah, sure, I'm going to live forever over here. Nothing can touch me. That's the human flesh. That's sin in the heart that thinks we're above this. Verse 20 is interesting. Here's God's whole commentary. God is watching the whole thing. This is all that counts. But God said to him, Fool. One word. One word answer from God is not good. Fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, he asks a question, whose will they be? This brings this whole fiasco to a very real and shocking end. Reality sets in. This world, the next world. Do you know when we're in such a fanatic position to succeed and to be wealthy or to be famous or whatever it might be, and we're all prone to this. It's not, it's not us against them. It's all of us. It's me too. I've got to think about this. And we're on this drive, we can really lose touch with reality. That I have to stand before God one day and give an account of my life. Ministry can do that. You get so driven in ministry, ministry, yeah, souls are being saved, the church is growing, oh, this, 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 everything's doing great. And you can forget that one day I've got to stand before God. He's going to look at me, and Brian has to give an account of my life. That should be a sobering thought for all of us. That should be a prism that when we go out and do life, we always have that in mind. And I do. One of the things I do, I know as a Christian minister, that I have to give an account of the way I handle the Bible. 
I just can't open up the Bible, 66 books. I can't open up one of those 1,187 1, chapters and, and just open up and just say whatever I want. I, I'm not allowed to do that. God doesn't take kindly to that. I have to stand before God and say, why did you teach that, Brian? Or oh, well done, good and faithful servant. You teach it properly and faithfully. The whole reality sets in. And this man's uncertain future comes to a sudden end. We don't know when God's going to reckon our life. We just don't know. It's not a bad place to live life from. Is that right, church? It's not a bad place. It's, it, it, it's good wisdom to say, you know something? I got, actually, the book of James talks about this. He says... Don't say we're going to go to another land and bargain and barter and make a lot of money and come back. He says, don't say that. Because no man knows what tomorrow brings. Only the Lord does. It's better to say this, if the Lord wills. And that's a healthy approach to life. If the Lord wills. I've got a lot of dreams and ambitions. If the Lord wills. I'm probably never going to break 75 at the course. But if the Lord wills, maybe I'll hit a couple low scores over there. I don't know. When it says God requires, it means to recall. Require in the Greek means to recall. It means to give something. Now God wants it back. He wants our life back. Let me tell you a mystery about life. You ready? I know this might shock you, but you did not will yourself into existence. I know that's hard to fathom, right? But you were here by someone else's design. We all know that, right? You would like to think it's mom and dad. As a matter of fact, that had something to do with it. But you're here because of God. God loved you a lot more than mom and dad. We exist in the image of God. God gave us life. God breathed into us the breath of life, and we became a living soul. It's all a gift. The body I have... Whatever money I have here, the friendships I have, the gifts and the talents I have, it's all on loan from God. Everything. Do you know your mind is on loan for God? I can't be sitting around being lazy mentally. I can't be lazy physically. I can't be lazy with the gifts and talents God has given me. They're not mine. They belong to God. And when you get that, and I learned that, it brings such meaning and purpose into every little thing we do, from reading a book to preparing a sermon, from hanging out with friends. We should be engaged. Our mind and our talents should be engaged. God will examine. God calls this greedy and self-indulgent behavior foolish. And you know why it was foolish? There was one element missing, that's all. All you need is one ingredient missing from life that qualifies for foolish. You can do everything good in life and be successful in life, but if you don't do this one thing, this one ingredient, it's foolish. You know what it is? You are not rich towards God. 
Everything we have is from the Lord. We need to be rich towards Him so we don't fall into this foolish behavior. Jesus agrees and says, What does a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Then God asks a very practical question. Whose will they be after your death? Will it be led to your brothers and families to fight over it and divide and conquer it? We've seen all too much greed. The unfortunate reality, some people are waiting for other people to die just to get the inheritance. It's a sad, sad, sad reality. Families fight about this all the time. I'd rather be broke. Take it. I would rather have nothing to do with it than have to fight over it. My mother passed away, and I went up to stay to just to see what's it. The house was empty. They took the chandelier, they took the homos, they took this. It was, it was like, I just wasn't in the ground three days. Gone. Everybody ran in and grabbed their little slice of the treasure. And it's like, how do, how do people live with themselves? Verse 21. So is he who lays treasure for himself is foolish and is not rich towards God. If any time we're inwardly just thinking of ourselves and we're not rich to other people and rich to God and the kingdom, then the truth of the matter is we're acting foolishly. Christians and non-Christians can can and will die in their pursuits. But the question is, whose kingdom are we building? Our own? Are we truly building the kingdom of God? This story must have left a deep, deep impression on the disciples because all of them, if you read Peter, you read John, you read Paul, you read the book of Acts where Luke also wrote that, you see how they wrote against them the love of money. They all do. They call it a trap that ensnares many and ruins the faith. Let's go into some application. As I said, theologically, I would ask a question. How many people really thought that one day they're going to have to give an account to God for their life? Everything about their life. What we have, what we don't have. Our attitudes. Our emotions. Everything is before the Lord. Everything we own. Specifically, the context of our story tonight is, is specifically how we deal with money. How we deal with possessions. You know, to be wealthy in the Old Testament, in this time, doesn't mean you had a lot of gold. You had a couple of camels and you had a donkey. Guess what? You were wealthy. You had a little land. Guess what? You were wealthy. It was about the possessions. It was a, a great eye-opener to me, and I shared this already from the sermon, that when I realized that one day I have to stand before God to give an account of everything He's given to me, what happened, with that understanding, with that reality, I realized what I have isn't Brian Martin's, it belongs to God. Me and my wife know that. We know that whatever God has given us, it belongs to God. We are stewards of that. If it's wealth, we're a steward of the wealth. If it's a gift, it's talents, it's whatever it is, it's not ours. 
It's God. So it goes that, how can we be rich towards God? What does that mean? How, how, how are we rich towards? How can you be rich to the wealthiest entity that owns everything? Everything belongs to, oil belongs to God, the silver belongs to God, the oxygen belongs to God, the wheat belongs to God, the oil, everything belongs to God. The air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat, we think it's ours, but guess what? It all belongs to all of it. Everything belongs to God, so how can we be rich to Him? I know what you're asking, Pastor, tell me. You see, what God's concerned about are people. People. You're rich towards God vertically when you're rich towards people horizontally. And money is not used for my own personal luxury or comfort or convenience, own personal satisfaction. I have to realize whatever I have in my life belongs to God. And it's his. He allows me to be a steward of it. And I have to know how to use this to bless the non-believer and to bless the believer at the same time. I have to know how to take five dollars and, and, and take someone out to dinner that has nothing. To buy pizza and a soda and to talk to them about how much God loves them. That's how you're rich towards God. I have to be able to and ready at all times to meet needs. As soon as a need comes to my attention, I have to be able to go to my wife and say, can we help out in meeting this need? Believer or non-believer, please understand, this is not just about us meeting each other's needs. We're supposed to do that. But please, the Bible says we need to be zealous for good works towards all people. Titus 3, 5. All people. So we have to walk out in the morning saying, God, I'm ready and prepared. You know I only got $3 on me, but guess what? $2 belongs to you. I just need something to get by in a day. If somebody needs a hand, I'm in. And when we go out with that attitude, guess what? You will see a whole different world. You will see need everywhere. And you will see God take $5 and turn it into $20. And you'll see God take $100 and turn it into $1,000. Be rich towards God. Let God know by the actions. We don't let our left hand know what our right hand's doing. We don't sound the trumpet when we're given. God sees the integrity of our heart. He sees the quiet things. He sees what no one else sees. And he sees why we do it. And when we bless another human being and we do it in the name of God, we're rich towards God. God. Father, we thank you, and we thank you for the text tonight, Father God, and I pray, Lord, that help us with the greed that's still in us, help us with covetousness and jealousy uh, and envy, help us in these areas of life, Father God, let us admire when someone else does well, let us pray for people, Father God, let us have good feelings towards people that do well in life, Father God, and, uh, and help us to be generous with what we do have, Lord, whatever it might be. Help us to be generous. Even if we have a little, God, let us be generous a lot towards people, Father God. Help us in this endeavor in Jesus' name.